Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. If you would like to hear powerful speakers on recovery from the effects of alcoholism, join Alcoholics Anonymous at their national convention in Melbourne this April. AA's national convention with Al-Anon participation will take place from the 22nd to the 24th of April 2022. For more information, go to the AA National Convention website at www.aanatcon2022.com. AA's National Convention with Al-Anon participation at the Pullman Hotel, 65 Queens Road, Albert Park. For more information about problem drinking, call Alcoholics Anonymous on 1300 222 222 or Al-Anon Family Groups, 1300 252 666. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that helps those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests tell their recovery story and describe how sharing their experience has changed or even saved their lives. I'd like to welcome Monica to the show. Monica is a member of Al-Anon Family Groups in New South Wales, and today she'll be telling her story of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and how Al-Anon has helped her cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So welcome today, Monica. Thank you. (laughs) I think I'd like just to ask you just where you grew up. Oh, okay. That's an interesting question, Anne. I grew up in Africa. So I grew up in um, South Africa in the northern part um, in a place that I likened to the back of Burke. So very far away from um, what you would call civilization. I grew up um, near a small village, which so and I grew up on a farm. And uh, what was the role of alcohol in your life? Okay, um, I'm I'm not aware of any role of alcoholism in my early childhood, um, but my childhood was extremely dysfunctional for for lots of reasons. 
my mother died when I was nine and my father died when I was 15. And so I was institutionalized. Mm. And, um, you know, it's anybody's guess how many people who were affected by alcoholism one way or the other were bringing me up in those institutions. Mm. Mm -hmm. I understand. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the the nature of the dysfunction in those institutions? Um, Yeah, I can can make that clear. Of course, um, not having a family, I was very isolated from from intimate relationships. Um, I had to comply to a lot of rules and regulations, which were often uh, not to my liking and were often draconian and inexplicable to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't make sense at all. Yep. Uh, things like uh, we had to dress up on Wednesday nights because it was pudding night. <laughs> yep. And, you know, yeah. Yep. Uh, things like that. It just didn't make sense to me at all. So, you know, we all used to rush around titivating on a Wednesday night for pudding. Yep. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, lining up bells everywhere, you know, bells to get up, bells for breakfast, bells for end of breakfast, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. You know, once counted about 25 bells a day. So, yeah, it was a very regimented life. It didn't make um, any room for individuality and it certainly didn't meet any child's needs. Yep. Um, there was just not enough people to go, you know, adults to go around. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And did yeah. and where was your family, uh, your father and other members of your extended okay. family at this point? So uh, my father continued on with his life. Um, he was happy to have us um, in an institution while he, you know, gallivanted and did the stuff. He was a businessman and he was busy and empire building and, you know, all the things that men do. And um, I think... The, you know, the, to have a responsibility for two young children, my brother and I, would have just impeded that whole process for him. So, yeah, yeah. he just continued, you know. And I would see him occasionally um, through the year, but not for very long times. Um, often we would be, during school holidays and so on, we would be farmed out to other families. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my basically when I was nine, my home environment was disrupted very badly disrupted yes yeah and but you still had contact with your siblings within the institutional setting um look um my brother and I went to the same school we weren't living in the same place but we went to the same school so we did see each other um until the end of my end of primary school which came three years later and then um because he was younger than me, he stayed on. And then we were separated to different schools and didn't see much of each other at all after that. Yes. Tell me about school. Yeah. By the time I got to high school, I was completely institutionalised, as you can imagine. Yes. Um, and totally used to the structure around me and um, uh, really uh, very find, found it very difficult to function without that. It was almost like it had taken over from where a personality develops. Mm-hmm. There was no need for me to um, to develop, you know, timekeeping skills or, you know, any of those sort of life skills that one learns as one gets older. And so when, you know, high school came along and I did very well at school, um, there was never any problem with that. But um, 
and it probably, you know, I did well because it was the only place where people noticed. It was the only, you know, <laughs> yeah. otherwise I was just a number or a cipher or, a, you know, just mm. one other little face um, in the crowd. And so, um, yeah, uh, I kept up my studies. I didn't do that well in the final year. And I think what happened, um, I fell into a depression and I think what happened is that um, I was suddenly terrified of the big wide world because mm. I knew I had to go out there. I had to leave school and I didn't have a family at that point to go to. Uh, so I won a scholarship to go to the United States for a year, uh, which I did. Um, so I spent uh, 1973, 74 in the United States in Ohio mm -hmm. Uh, which was um, interesting and uh, uh, a political awakening for me um, to see, you know, a different system. Uh, it was the year that Nixon was impeached. Mm. It was yeah. a fascinating time yeah. to be young and aware of my environment and, you know, um, learning about the world. And then I came back to South Africa and went to university and um, dropped out because basically I couldn't cope with not having a structure around me. And so uh, I did various other things, educated myself in less onerous ways, if you like, yeah. and found employment. And then when I was in my sort of, and I also at that time sought help because I knew that I wasn't coping and that somehow I was, I was not quite up to speed with what other people, how other people ran their lives. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why. Um, so, yeah. Uh, got some Monica, sort can, of, can I interrupt and ask, yeah. what, what about friendship? Okay. So um, friendships um, in an institution like that, which was a boarding school, it was a boarding school, um, were tight and close, but they didn't endure um, for me. I left school and left it all behind mm -hmm. um, and basically went on as if those years had never happened in terms of relationships. Mm. So because, you know, I know now that um, because my... my um, Bringing, bringing up and my growing up had been so fractured, I was used to fracturing. Uh -huh. That was what you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just moved on. I just moved on. That's what my, my um, adult role models modelled to me and that's what I did. Mm. Um, and so I made um, some friends at university um, and it's very interesting. Those relationships, are, you know, I moved on from them as well. But they, it, you know, I, I, and I'll come to this. Once I got into proper recovery, they were restored to me. And I'll, I'll develop that a little. So, um, mm, but, you know, at a later time, because that's my recovery story, not, mm -hmm. you know, not the yeah. lead up to, to that. So, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I was very solitary, but also I had learned to be very self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. Um, to to find solutions for problems, to be very proactive on my own behalf, mm -hmm. um, and to scoff at people who said 
you know, how, how can you be managing without parents and, you know, without a family? I would just go, mm, you know, it's fine. Mm. Yeah. So, so your, fa- in fact, your, father had, your father had um, virtually abandoned you then? Was, was it not somewhere you could go to for, for family and support? Well, my father died when I was 15, as I mentioned oh. earlier. So, yeah, uh-huh. he, I, you know, I was an orphan by the time I was 15. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was completely self-reliant and, you know, I had this deep belief that I was the only person who could run my life. Yeah. You know, I can remember at high school going out and buying a hammer because I needed to bang some nails in a wall. And I don't think anyone else at that school had a hammer. Uh, yep. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yes. You know, yep. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, that, that's, that was my life. I, you know, I, um, I was very, uh, very practical in, in my outlook. I think that that came from my early childhood being taught to be very practical by my yeah. mother who was a very practical person. And so, you know, there was always a solution to the problem. Yeah. Um, and I would find it. Um, I, you know, I learned to knit and sew and cater for myself and, you know, all of these things. So, yeah, yeah. very okay. self-sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you find, you're finding yourself self-sufficient uh, in practical uh, ways, yeah. but, but um, struggling emotionally and, and understanding oh, that yeah. you're struggling emotionally. Yeah. So could you talk uh, just, just in the lead up to the break about um, what was the nature of the, the emotional struggles just for a minute? Or okay. Two? So I would fall into depressions from time to time, quite understandably. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, and I could, I, you know, I just found it really difficult to sustain relationships beyond the first flush of whatever, yep. you know. Once that had worn off, I didn't know what to do, mm-hmm. I, you know, and, and often I would, if I felt abandoned for any reason, I can remember breaking up with someone who I actually was very fond of because he needed to study for exams and I felt abandoned. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't actually see myself through that abandon, you know, that temporary abandonment yes. to a place where, um, you know, maybe we could have continued. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Thank you, Monica. So we'll take a break now. Here's some music. It's Kalulu Warrior with her new single, Moonlight.
How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl. Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. Tune in to 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. You're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about The Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Today I'm talking to Monica, who's a member of Al-Anon Family Groups, 
So Monica, can you tell us a little bit about your um, early adult life and how you first came into contact with an alcoholic? Sure. Um, so um, I'm guessing, but I don't know that um, my early relate, you know, my sort of late adolescent, early um, adult relationships were with people who were very dysfunctional. But they never lasted long enough for me to figure that out. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, my sort of early adulthood, um, I spent adventuring. Um, I I met up with someone who was um, going to sail around the world uh, on a yacht and needed crewing. Wow! Um, just you know, <laughs> so I decided to do that. I had um, I just done a, a cooking course, so I was a good cook, mm -hmm. and it seemed like a good match. Yep. So, <laughs> uh, so off I went. I flew to meet the, the the crew in England, and then we flew to Hong Kong to meet the boat. And the boat actually happened to be the Gypsy Moth Five, which was one of Francis Chichester's last boats. So he was a famous around the world. Um, ah. He was the first man to circumnavigate the world in a yacht. And um, so it was one of his boats and um, it belonged to his son at that point. And we were going to sail it from Hong Kong all the way around the world, around the Cape, back to Rotterdam. Um, and on the way, we were going to participate in a race um, from Jakarta to Rotterdam called the Spice Race because um, in the old days the, um, the sailing boats used to go from Jakarta to Rotterdam with mm. the spice, mm -hmm. you know, cargo yeah. holds of spice. And um, so we were going to see if we could beat the, the record of the spice ships. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, so I boarded the boat um, in Hong Kong and promptly became very, very, very sick. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so sick that I was actually incapacitated for several days and they feared for my life. I mean, we continued to sail because we needed, you know, we had some mm. deadlines. But um, when we got to Jakarta, it was obvious that I could not sail around the Cape of Good Hope, which is uh -huh. a Cape of Storms. Yes. Um, so they basically left me in Jakarta and sailed away. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Did you feel abandoned? And I then put, yep, abandoned all over again. But <laughs> I put a pack on my back and I made my way through Southeast Asia back to Europe on my own. It took me six months. Wow. Monica, so I, I mean, I'm intrigued. Uh, this uh, girl from the back of beyond, as you said, yeah. inland yes. South Africa. Had you Absolutely. sailed? Had you sailed before? I'd never sailed before. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm intrigued also. Uh, this child who was institutionalised and uncertain yeah. in the world and prone to bouts of depression. I'm yeah. really impressed by a decision to sail around the world. Can you <laughs> talk to me world. about where right. where that where that adventurous uh, boldness yeah. came from. I have no idea. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, my my siblings and I do have older siblings. Um, never never ventured out of their country. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, 
Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, that's what I did. And at the end of that journey, I ended up in England um, because that's where my ticket, my air ticket was back to South, back to South Africa, if you know what I mean, because I'd mm -hmm. flown to England to meet the crew and then, you know, so I needed to get back to England so I could get back to <laughs> South Africa. And so I ended up in England and um, found a job. And I found a job in a pub. Of course, of course I did, mm -hmm. you know, as an expat in London. Yep. What else do you do? You find a job in a pub. Um, and I found digs and um, I, that's where I met my husband, in the pub. Mm -hmm. um, he was a regular. He would come in every lunchtime. It was around the corner from his work. And in England, that's very common. Uh, for people to come into the pub for, you know, a quick one at lunchtime and then to come back to the pub in the evening for a few before they go home. Mm. Um, and that's what he did. And he started chatting me up. We found out I was South African and he was South African. Um, and, um, yeah, basically that's how we met and it sort of went from there. The relationship, I can look back now and say it was extremely dysfunctional right from the start. Mm. I had no idea how much he drank or how that would affect me. I had no prior knowledge of what alcoholism does to people. Yeah, and so, you know, eventually we started living together. I got a job then um, in a catering job in a um, a head office of a, a big organization and yeah we kind of cohabited for a while and then I tried to get away from him realizing that things weren't going very well yeah. <laughs> um, and he basically threatened that he would commit suicide if I left mm -hmm. and I was terrified that that would happen so I stayed mm -hmm. And that was the tenor of, of our relationship from then on. He mm -hmm. knew that he could manipulate me. Um, and, you know, whatever story he told, I would believe. Yeah. So um, at that point, I began to be aware of how much he drank. He never drank at home. We, there were never any bottles at home. But, of course, in England, you can go to any pub anytime mm. and, you know, get smashed. And this is what he used to do. And he'd, you know, stumble home at three in the morning or, you know, whatever it was. He was also a gambler, so he'd often be out playing the tables or, you know, playing the, the video games or the, you know, whatever, mm. you know, gaming, basically. Um, yeah, and I was kind of left literally holding the baby. Yeah. Because, of course, there was a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and by the time I had the baby, I knew that I was trapped. Yeah. Uh, and that's how it felt to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, once the baby was born, he was a very proud father, I must say, um, but not a very hands-on man. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, I literally was left holding the, the baby. Um, he decided that um, in, order, uh, in order to escape his creditors, because, you know, he owed money everywhere, um, and also for a new opportunity now that he had a family, he, we would come to Australia and he had a brother here and we were sponsored and he applied for a, a job sight unseen and got it and, you know, all of these sorts of things. So it all sort of slotted into place and I left that to him because Australia was not my first choice 
for mm. a place to live. I'd never been to Australia. I knew nothing about it. In fact, I'd never even heard of Uluru. I'd never, I mm. didn't even know that, that was yeah. part of my world. So, yeah, so um, Monica, Monica, along we came to Australia. How old were you both? How old? Yeah. Okay, so he was approaching 40 and I was 28, something like that. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was about 12 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And did coming so, to Australia for you um, represent the, a geographical cure? Did you think that that might improve things? Well, I, I think he did. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea about geographical cures at this point. I had no illusions about how difficult it was going to be. I'd already done one migration from South Africa to England, and that mm. was tough enough. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, along we came, severed all the relationships in, in, in London, um, and off we went, you know, off we came to Australia, new adventure. Um, and no sooner had he arrived when he hooked up with a cousin of his. And this cousin was destruction on wheels. Mm. <laughs> uh, so the cousin showed him all the lurks and the perks and, you know, where to get the, the stuff, whatever stuff he, they were into. Mm. And off they went. And I was literally left holding Two babies. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what was your mental what was your mental state like at, at that, that point? At that point I started to despair. Mm-hmm. Um, I threw myself into bringing up the children because that was my, you know, my whole life. And of course I was very focused on the alcoholic, um, trying to placate, to please, to to minimise disruption, um, yeah, he, you know, he, he could be um, very aggressive when drunk. He was also very verbally uh, abusive mm-hmm. um, and he also played mind games. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so he was a particularly destructive man. Um, you know, his alcoholism had really, and it wasn't just alcoholism. I mean, there was gambling, there were other addictions, you know, it was... It was just multifaceted. There was never, you know, there was never a time, I don't think I ever knew him fully sober mm-hmm. or clean. Yeah. I, I, you know, he would say that, you know, oh, you know, because I, I would beg him, you know, stop drinking, please stop drinking. Oh, yeah, I've stopped drinking. But then, you know, he'd find something else. Find it with something else. <laughs> and he smoked and, you know, all of the stuff. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. At that point, I remember consulting uh, the GP and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, I'm not coping. My husband you know, is often drunk and, you know, I, I find it very difficult. And the GP said, bring him to me. Come, you know, bring him. And <laughs> proceeded to say in that interview, now you need to stop drinking because it's upsetting your wife. Oh, <laughs> how sweet and naive. <laughs> yes. You can imagine my despair after that because <laughs> I knew that wasn't going to do it. Mm. Uh, so yeah, you know, I turned into uh, yeah, yeah, a very um, uh, defended, threatened, 
person, lots of shouting and crying, lots of fighting. I can remember my son begging us not to fight. Mm. Um, yeah. So did you, you have know, friends? Did you manage to um, form friendships? Now, but that was difficult. I did make a few friends round and about the place, um, but he would. He was very controlling. That was the other thing. Mm. Having, I think he grew up in an alcoholic environment and he grew up with the controlling gene. And, you know, while mine was, you know, exercised in certain ways, he controlled me mm. and he would monitor my phone calls. He would have post-mortems of where, you know, where I'd been, who I'd been with, um, what did I say? Did I talk about the, you know, mm. all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. he, he, he just made it impossible and completely isolated me as much as he possibly could. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He then started a business and roped me into it by manipulation. Um, and then I was really, then he used to literally lock me in the shop mm. when he went, you know, to do business. He, he'd literally lock the door. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, lots of... Lots of abuse, but none on my body, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yep. And none that I could identify because I used to say to him, if you touch me, I will leave. So he never actually hit me. He yep. came close, but he never did. Um, but, you know, the other stuff that was happening in that relationship was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. I had no money of my own. I was never paid for the work I did he would spend all the money that we made in that business and we were often left scrambling for rent, you know, all the things that happen in an alcoholic mm -hmm. environment. I would be left, you know, making excuses for where he was. Oh, I'm so sorry. He's at our other office. And in fact, he was in the pub. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. So, you know, I did all this, the classical yeah. stuff that an alanonic spouse <laughs> or does you know I, I paid the bills for him I picked up the pieces I you know yeah all of those things all of those things mm. and it was a neighbor who um, heard us fighting one Saturday afternoon um, you know it was one of those fights where he was picking up the chairs and flinging them against the wall so of course mm. the neighbors heard she, my neighbor knocked on the door and said, I'm going to take the children. Oh. So she took the children, they went with her. And um, after hours of trying to pacify this man, he eventually fell asleep. And she brought the kids back, they'd been bathed and fed. And um, she said to me at the door, I think you need Alan on. Wow. And I said, um, there's nothing happening in this family that I can't deal with. Thanks. Mm. <laughs> and I, I virtually slammed the door in her face. Yeah. So anyway, she had sowed the seed. And after three more Christmases of sheer chaos and, you know, unbelievable stuff, you know, we moved house, all sorts of, you know, all sorts of things. We were about to lose our business it you know it was just mm. yeah getting really hairy um i remembered about alanon 
and I, uh, I looked in the front of the phone book. In those days, the phone book had a page where all the emergency numbers were, and there was Al-Anon mm. right at the top, A for Al-Anon. Mm. <laughs> and I rang the number and they said, oh, yeah, there's a meeting um, in your suburb and um, it's on tonight. Wow. Uh, you know, you need to go along. And I thought, oh, well, you know, there's nothing to be lost here. So I told my husband that I was going to a church meeting which was a half truth because mm -hmm. it was in a church and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it happened to be literally two blocks away from where I lived. And I, you know, my first meeting was a revelation to me, absolute revelation. I was desperate. I was isolated. I was lonely. I was despairing, um, wretched. I was truly wretched at that mm. point. And had no idea what I could do, how I could change things, absolutely no idea. Um, you know, I was, I had become a, a, a busy holic, mm -hmm. kept myself busy often for 18 hours a day and then fall into bed and then get up the next day and start all over again. You know, I was neglecting my children. Mm -hmm. It was awful. Mm -hmm. And I knew that my children were suffering. You know, I could see the signs of that. Yeah, and so I basically went to Al-Anon thinking I'd find a solution for my children. Uh -huh. I instinctively knew I couldn't do anything about his alcoholism, but I was desperate to protect my children because they literally were the only human beings I loved in the world. Uh huh. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm in tears now mm. <laughs> because remembering that time and remembering how. Uh, you know, I just really needed to do something, anything. Mm -hmm. um, and Almon was the only thing that presented itself at the time. Thank you, Monica. We'll take a break now and we'll be right back after this song.
song you just heard was Best Part by Fools. This is a Living Free show on 3CR digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Today I'm talking to Monica and uh, she's going to tell us all about her uh, recovery after she went to Al-Anon. So thank you, Monica. So you went to your first Al-Anon meeting because you felt instinctively that you couldn't do anything to change the alcoholic, but you desperately wanted to protect your children. Yeah, so um, I can remember in my first Al-Anon meeting hearing other people's stories of how they were dealing with alcoholics in their lives. And it was like, well, it was a revelation. Uh, It was like a curtain being opened and being able to see through a window for me. Um, And it felt like there was hope in the room, you know, hope for change, hope for solutions, hope that this was not permanent, that I didn't have to do this for the rest of my life. There was just hope. I wasn't even sure what I hoped for, but there was just this feeling that, oh, my gosh, these people are talking about what I'm enduring. And some of them have got smiles on their faces, you know. Some of them are really doing stuff with their lives. And I wanted that, you know, I wanted that, and I wanted that for my children. Of course, what happened in those first years is that um, the scales fell from my eyes about how much abuse I was actually um, living with. You know, people talked about, uh, in Al-Anon, they talked about unacceptable behaviour. I had had no concept of unacceptable behaviour. Having grown up in institutions where most of the behaviour was unacceptable, um, I just, you know, accepted everything. You know, it was just part of life. And, um, yeah, there were just, you know, some things that were not negotiable. And uh, I learned lots of practical things to do. I can remember one of the things that I learned in my first Al-Anon meetings was to keep my mouth shut and not to try and argue back with someone who was drunk. Mm-hmm. And that de-escalated a lot of the aggression in, in our home. What happened, though, because my husband was very canny, mm. uh, was that he upped the ante. Um, as soon as he began to realise that he wasn't baiting me anymore, he threw out more bait. And so things got pretty hairy. But fortunately for me, with the support of going to a meeting once a week, and that's all I could do, I managed to stand my ground most of the time. And it took a you know massive effort. I can remember it took a massive effort. And as I began to practice those really practical things, you know, um, I can remember there was one one lady who said, you know, when the bullshit starts, just fling open the windows to let the bullshit out. And, <laughs> <laughs> or get up and go and make a cup of tea, you know, do something else. Don't stand there and take it. And, of course, I've been standing there and taking it and defending myself. And what you defend, you own. You know, it Mm. becomes real. Um, You know, he used to call me all the names under the sun. If I so much as glanced at anybody that he didn't approve of, that, you know, he would go nuts and I would be, you know, defending myself and saying, you know, all I I did was say hello and, you know, Mm. all of that. So I stopped doing that. 
I just stopped defending and um, it was hard. It was hard for all of us. I remember my children also pushing to, to get back to how it used to be because that's what they were used mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And so there was this whole other very unstable feeling in our family for a while there. So, you know, the al journey initially, although um, I was thrilled to find um, a tribe, if you like, somewhere where I could, could really let my hair down and, and talk about things, um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't an easy time. It, was, it felt great, but in, my, in our family it was hard. Uh, but I continued to go to Al-Anon because I continued to want whatever Al-Anon, you know, was, was espousing, if you like. Yeah. And at that point, was very much still very much needing the practical solutions and totally in my head, I, you know, I can remember thinking if I could just learn this off by heart, mm-hmm. um, then, then I'll have the solutions, you know. Mm-hmm. And someone gave me um, a daily reader, one of the Al-Anon daily readers, which is now an indispensable part of my life. But at that point, I put it in my handbag as if it was some kind of talisman, like a piece of garlic to, to keep the vampires away. <laughs> you know, it, 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 yeah, it served as a, a, a touchstone rather than as actual practical book to consult. And so, um, yeah, there was still a lot of magical thinking, still a lot of, you know, wishing that things could be different and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in my third year, going into the fourth year of Al-Anon, I, I knew that the relationship could not continue the way it was. He, he was not prepared to change anything. Um, and he was continuing in crazy behaviour, dragging us through, you know, financial hardship. Mm. It was very hard. And um, I had enough guts at that point I had you know stored up enough strength and understanding from Al-Anon to be able to say to him that's it I'm not doing this anymore I'm not coming to the gutter with you sorry I'm out mm. um, did you, um, that, you tried that before had you threatened I had before? I yeah I had and he'd always threatened me but this time I wasn't going to listen to the threats because I knew they were empty threats I began to understand that I didn't have to believe everything that came out of this man's mouth. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he threatened and he he went bananas and he threatened to do all sorts of things. And, you know, I was never going to make it. And, he, you know, he kept saying, you know, you'll never survive and what are you going to do, you know. You, you, you've never had a job in this country, which was true, and we'd been in the country at that point for about 10 years. You know, you, you're... You're unemployable, blah, blah, blah. And I went out that same day and found a job. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and um, as a result of that, um, was able to move out and pay rent. But, yeah, it was not without the alcoholic drama. Mm-hmm. Um, so he basically, what he did was he, um, how am I going to put this? He took my son hostage. So my son was eight at the time and my my daughter was 10 and he refused to let my son come with me. And so he split the family down the middle. Now, um, I can remember being absolutely torn Mm. because this was his way of 
trying to get me to stay, you see. Mm. <laughs> it, yeah. But um, I knew that I could not stay, that really my life was at stake at this point. And so I left with a very, very, very heavy heart, mm. very heavy. It was very difficult. But, you know, I continued to go to my Al-Anon meetings and I can remember at that time really crying a lot at meetings. It was so hard. It was so hard to leave my son with, my, with his father. Mm. But, um, you know, we, one day at a time we got through that and I would see him every day after school anyway. Um, my, my husband was picking the kids up from school every day, both kids, and so I would go and fetch my daughter and see my son. But, you know, it was fraught. It was mm. absolutely fraught. He, he did not, it, he was like a, a dog with a bone. He would not let it go. My, my husband would not let me go. <laughs> mm. um, it was very hard. And so, um, you know, I gradually began to build up a life of my own and uh, to, to have some safety because, I, you know, that whole relationship was so unstable, so unsafe. I began to kind of put things in place for a little bit of safety and he would often, you know, the kids, he would often turn up at my house. So in the end, what happened is I actually had my son more days than he did uh, because he would often drop my son off because mm. he was going off gambling or drinking or whatever and, you know, he wouldn't come back. <laughs> um, and so, you know, my son was this kind of pawn in this whole mess. It's mm. awful. And I tried to go to the courts about it, but because there had been no crime committed, oh. wasn't any law <laughs> that, that could be, you know, brought mm. down to, yeah, anyway. So, um, yeah, and, he, you know, he continued to be a threatening character, always threatening, always threatening, always had this, you know, undercurrent of threat around him. And so, you know, I began to build up my life and my daughter went to high school and my son was growing up. And at that point, he turned up one weekend with my son and a big suitcase and said, here, you take him. I, I, I can't deal with this. Um, I'm going bankrupt, basically. Mm -hmm. So he'd run the, our business into the ground. I, didn't, I no longer had anything to do with the business. So my son came to live with me. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I had then had to deal with a very traumatised child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm happy to say today that all the way through this, I continued my meetings, I continued to learn about alcoholism and what it does to families, and I continued to uh, an upward tra trajectory in my own life. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I, I began to build my own life and to have people around me who cared about me and who I cared about and to be able to, you know, to sustain those relationships and to continue them. And often, you know, I would come home and the kids would be at home and they would have let my husband in and... Um, I would find him foraging in my in my refrigerator for leftovers or with his feet up watching my television. Oh, I just came to watch the soccer. He wasn't there to um, to see the children. Mm. Mm. You know, he would say hello to them for, you know, two or three minutes and then it would be about what he wanted. Mm. And um, that was very hard. But there came a point 
where I had a job, I got a job, and um, as a result of that job, I was given a, 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 a Christmas bonus, and this Christmas bonus was a ticket back to my country of origin. Can you believe it? That was the action. That was the present. That that was the present. Wow! <laughs> and so finally, after you know, nineteen years, I had the 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 wherewithal to go home, so to speak. Was this just by and yourself, Monica, or with the children? This was just by myself. But what I decided to do was my my son had just finished high school, and I decided to take him with me. Uh, my daughter at that point was at university, so. I, um, you know, I, I bought a ticket for my son, saved up, bought a ticket for my son, and off we went. We had six weeks. Um, which, and it was an amazing time, a very spiritual time for me. Um, I did a lot of amending relationships and mm. um, seeing people I hadn't seen for a long time. I took my son to meet his cousins because mm-hmm. we, we have no relations here. You know, all of all of those things, you know, mm. I went back to my family home, um, which um, the family farm, which my brother inherited. And, you know, it it was an incredible time. Mm. Came back um, to Australia after six weeks and knew that something fundamental had changed in me. So all these years, the 12 years that had elapsed since I'd left my alcoholic and um, and this time when I went back home I'd been single I'd been a single mum I'd been you know struggling along coping along and suddenly I was ready for something new another relationship whatever you know something had to change my my kids were now nearly off my hands Mm. um and so yeah it was it was time and um I very soon after that fell into another relationship Mm. Uh, and no surprises here, an alcoholic. <laughs> but this time, an alcoholic who'd been in recovery for many, many, many years, almost as many years as I'd been alive. And, um, yeah, a whole a whole different experience, a uh-huh. completely different experience, a loving relationship from, from the start. Not an easy relationship, but certainly nothing mm. like what it had been like with um, with my husband. Um, and um, at that point, my husband decided that he wanted nothing more to do with me, which was great. It suited <laughs> me down to the ground. <laughs> he never let go for one minute. Uh, you know, when we would meet up from time to time, you know, for instance, if the kids insisted we should have Christmas morning together, we would meet up and he would still say, when are you coming back to me? Mm. You know. So, yeah, he never, ever let up. But, um, yeah, so I was in a new relationship. I moved house and, you know, things went along pretty fine. And all this time I stayed in al mm. <laughs> and I practised the program and it began to make more and more Um, inroads if you like into my consciousness Mm. it was less of an intellectual exercise and more of a spiritual and emotional regrowing of my spirit and myself Mm. and I can you know I cannot speak highly enough of what Elanon has given me Mm. it gave me 
the opportunity to have a different life mm. from what I set out with in the beginning. And, um, you know, I, I really <laughs> feel like I've made a life, that I have a life. You know, there's nothing better than meeting someone who has a life, yeah. who, who, who is, you know, engaged in, in stuff. All along in this process, and I said I would get back to this, I, um, I was able through coincidences and really, you know, coincidences are kind of normal in Al-Anon. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, through coincidences to, to re, regroup or rejoin or re, I don't know, to, to meet up with, again, people from high school. Oh. And I now belong to a blog of those people, and we've been blogging for the last 12, 15 years. So I organised, um, I realised that I wasn't the only person from my high school in Australia. That was a big surprise to me because all those years I thought I was all alone, you know. And so I, um, I organised... On Australia Day 2008, I think it was, so coming up anniversary time very soon, um, a reunion of these people. Mm. And um, I gathered them all around from New Zealand and Australia, all around Australia. And they all came, they flew into Sydney and we had the most incredible reunion. It was <laughs> astonishing. Because uh, I hadn't seen these people for nearly 40 years. <laughs> and... Um, as a result of that, we organized a 40th school reunion in South Africa, and uh, we got in touch with as many of our 120 people as we could, you know, our 120 matriculants as we could, and 60, I think it was 60 people turned up at our reunion weekend in South Africa, and I flew back for that in 2012, mm. and again, the most emotional, spiritual, incredible, eventful. Mm. I mean, it was just extraordinary, this journey. And um, we still talk about it. You know, it was just so powerful mm. meeting everyone again. Yeah, and being able to, you know, sort out old grudges and mm. it was just, it was stunning. It was wonderful. We're at the end yep. of our time. Do you think you would have, yep. would have um, done that, facilitated that without Al-Anon? Was, was your... Of course not. Nope. No, no, I wouldn't have had the courage or the nous or the understanding that it was necessary. Or possibly the energy if you, if you were still dealing with that dysfunction. Yeah, oh, I, yeah it, would, it would never have happened. No. Mm. And I wouldn't have had the money. Yeah. Mm. Well, Monica, that takes us to the end of our interview and I just want to express my, my appreciation for that story that you've told. I found it very inspiring. So thank you very much again for coming on to The Living Free Show. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for listening to The Living Free Show. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.